Aspira Incorporated is the world's leading provider of injectable drugs and infusion technologies. Aspira has an anesthesia and critical care portfolio, which includes Presidex, dexmedetomidine, hydrochloride injection. Through its broad, integrated portfolio, Hospira is uniquely positioned to advance wellness by improving patient and caregiver safety while reducing health care costs. You can find us at www.hospira.com. Welcome and hello to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Today I'm speaking with Bradley D. Freeman, MD. FACS to discuss his article published in the October Critical Care Medicine. His article is entitled Tracheostomy Practices in Adults with Acute Respiratory Failure. Dr. Freeman is Associate Professor of Surgery in the Division of General Surgery at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Freeman, thank you for being here. First question I have is why you felt it was necessary to do a review on tracheostomy practices. Right. Well, uh, it's a topic I've been interested in uh, for a number of years, and uh, particularly with respect to techniques of uh, placing tracheostomy, uh, whether it be percutaneous or surgical, as well as a patient selection. And uh, if you look back through the history of this topic, even though it is uh, somewhat of a uh, mundane topic, uh, there interestingly has been quite a lot uh, written about it. And uh, I, I think further, it's a, uh, a problem that uh, all intensivists uh, deal with, whether you're a medical intensivist or a surgical intensivist or a neurointensivist. Uh, you know, the, there are patients that are, uh, if you will, are on the, are the long tail of people with, who require mechanical ventilation. Many of them undergo tracheostomy. And how is best uh, to manage that? And, and then I think following one of the reasons uh, – I became interested in, and I think um, bears on on writing this article is uh, that in virtually every study that it's been uh, raised, uh, these are typically very resource intensive and expensive patients to care for. So, uh, and and that's been uh, uh, validated by HRQ and HCUP and a variety of resources. So without knowing anything else about a patient, uh, if you could say that they have a tracheostomy in place, uh, by and large, uh, they outstrip all other patients in terms of the amount of resources uh, that uh, are thrown at them to get get them through the hospital system. And so one of the underlying assumptions that we've always had as as a investigative group was that if you can potentially, even though they're a very small fraction of all uh, ICU patients, you know, potentially because they do represent such a large resource burden, you can optimize their care. You can either a bend the cost curve down, or at least uh, get better return for your investment. So those are the things that have uh, you know always somewhat driven my interest. There's ambiguity as to the benefit, as well as these other other factors. It seems like the most obvious question, perhaps the most controversial question. Would be who gets a tracheostomy and when should they get it? Right, and so uh, that's one of the things that has been debated. Uh, if anything, uh, if if anything more than any other aspect of this, uh, there's been a huge debate over the last, particularly two decades, as to uh, the time of the tracheostomy, whether that makes a difference. And and uh, suffice it to say, there's a there has been a large number of. Uh, 
relatively small studies that look at the effect of time of tracheostomy, and they're all all uh, looked at uh, the endpoints of, say, duration mechanical volition, ICU length to stay, hospital length to stay, other parameters of resource expenditure, ventilator-associated pneumonia, and those types of things. And uh, interestingly, in the last two years, I think there's been three very well-known large, uh, and, and if you will, somewhat definitive studies on this issue. One was uh, published uh, in 2010 by Taragni and his group uh, from Italy and published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that looked at the effect of dominant tracheostomy on ventilator-associated pneumonia and, and uh, somewhat uh, cutting to the chase suggested that there was no effect on ventilator-associated pneumonia. There did appear to be a small effect on duration mechanical ventilation, but that didn't translate into ICU length of stay. So I would say with respect to that study, timing did not make a, a difference with respect to their primary endpoint. There was a second study uh, published last year in uh, Annals of Internal Medicine by a group from France. was uh, spearheaded by Trulay that looked at timing of tracheostomy and patients that were uh, status post-cardiac uh, procedures and uh, patients were randomized to tracheostomy at either five days after the procedure or uh, two weeks or greater after the procedure. Again, uh, looking at things at duration, mechanical ventilation, infectious complications, ICU like the state, those types of hard endpoints. And again, uh, no effect of timing on these inputs. Now, the interesting thing about that study, they looked at some other uh, things that you and I as intensivists might value, and such things as uh, the amount of sedation patients required, uh, the mobility of patients actually getting them out of bed to say uh, just sitting in a chair or, or possibly being more engaged in physical therapy. They looked at inputs such as incidence of delirium, found an effect. Uh, on that. Uh, so, you know, so kind of non-traditional endpoints that would be uh, uh, more patient-centric, if you will, or, or maybe that would translate into uh, nursing satisfaction, uh, did appear to be, to be affected by time in a tracheostomy. That is, that uh, uh, these patients were, one could make the argument, were probably somewhat easier to deal with from a nursing standpoint. They were less sedated. Most likely, they didn't have restraints on. Uh, they could interact more with their family, interact more with the nursing staff. So, uh, it did appear to be an effect with respect to those types of outcomes. And then finally, uh, there was a study, uh, again, conducted in uh, Western Europe called the Trachman study, which uh, randomized patients to uh, tracheostomy four days or earlier after onset of mechanical ablation or after 10 days. And once again, this did not find an effect on the primary income outcome, which in this particular case was mortality. But they also looked at other things, such as duration mechanical ventilation, et cetera. And one of the important points of the trachman study, which has not been published in manuscript form, some have been released in abstract, is that a big fraction of patients randomized to the late group uh, actually were weaned from mechanical ventilation prior to undergoing tracheostomy. And I think that that study particularly emphasized that uh, we as clinicians are somewhat poor at predicting who has prolonged need for mechanical ventilation. I think that's been a consistent theme through all these studies that for patients, particularly randomized to the late arm, a large fraction, 25 to 35%, typically get weaned before uh, undergoing the procedure. So I think that's a limitation to all these studies. But I, but I would say uh, all these studies were well done. They were well planned out. I think they were they, uh, approached an important question in critical care. But, you know, and I think the answer is that time in a tracheostomy doesn't make a difference uh, with respect to these uh, hard endpoints like duration, mechanical ventilation, infectious complications, I see like the state. 
And uh, one of the take-home messages is that I think it's become somewhat difficult to, to make the argument to proceeding with tracheostomy, all other things being equal, prior to two weeks of mechanical ventilation. And that's based on the Teragni study where uh, two weeks was the compared to arm, as was the case in some of these other studies. No, the There's case, caveats to that, obviously, but you know, I think for, if you're just thinking about respiratory failure, no other need for surgical airway, you know, we should probably be circumspect about doing early tracheostomy. What about in the case of severe head trauma? I think that's a little bit of a different issue. Uh, so these studies did not uh, look at people with a neurologic impairment, but uh, you know, that, that's a little bit of a different issue, and I, and I think these patients. Uh, uh, their need for a surgical airway is going to be more dictated about their inability, number one, their inability to uh, protect their airway, effects-based, number two, uh, a need to, if you will, move them through the ICU to potentially a rehab setting where they could get, could get into intensive rehabilitative care. And uh, if anything, that's going to have a greater impact on their potential for recovery. So they weren't specifically addressed in these studies, and I think a neurologically impaired patient where uh, I think there is some uh, possibility they're going to have prolonged neurologic impairment as a, as a patient it, it, that does have an indication for a surgical airway early on. Talking about the technique for a few minutes, should we be doing these at the bedside in the intensive care unit or in the operating room? Should we be doing the standard open tracheostomy or the percutaneous dilatational tracheostomy? Certainly, percutaneous tracheostomy has become very popular since uh, it was popularized by a group out of uh, New York in the uh, mid-1980s. And certainly in some of these studies, such as the study by Teragni, all the, all the tracheostomies were performed by percutaneous technique. There's been a number of studies looking at the benefits and risks of percutaneous tracheostomy versus uh, surgical airway. And the data would suggest uh, almost uh, uniformly that uh, particularly if the tracheostomy, the surgical tracheostomy is performed in the operating room, there's a significant cost savings as one could imagine by performing it in the ICU. And that translates into approximately $2,000 to $3,000 of, of uh, charges per patient. So assuming that the uh, patient is a good candidate for percutaneous tracheostomy, there appears to be economic advantage uh, to avoid a trip to the operating room. Now, there are some groups that obviously perform surgical tracheostomies at the bedside. You know, that would obviously negate any cost saving. There's other potential advantages to percutaneous tracheostomy, and one of which is because there's minimal dead space between the tracheostomy and the pretracheal tissues, uh, just because you're using this progressive dilator technique, uh, there appears to be an advantage with respect to infectious complications related to the stoma itself. So, uh, peristomal infection or cellulitis or abscess or those types of things. Now, those types of complications are fairly uncommon to begin with, but again, there appears to be a slight advantage with respect to that. There may be an advantage that once uh, patients are decannulated, the percutaneous tracheostomy stoma closes more rapidly, I think, in the vast majority of patients. That doesn't make a lot of difference, but that's a potential theoretical advantage of a percutaneous tracheostomy. Now, having said that, you know, there's patients that, that I think are relative contra indications to uh, percutaneous tracheostomy. Those would include people that have a difficult airway so that if you're uh, doing this by bronchoscopic technique and you lost the airway, it would be difficult to reestablish. So by and large, those people are probably better served with a surgical approach if the anterior neck anatomy is a somewhat ambiguous where you can't palpate the landmarks well. I, I think those are relative, those patients are relative for contraindication to percutaneous tracheostomy. And I think also patients that uh, you can't really get optimal uh, positioning such that, uh, and typically for, for tracheostomy, whether performed percutaneous or surgically, 
uh, one likes to have the neck a little bit of a hyperextension. And if you can't do that, maybe because a person has a cervical collar in place or there's uh, some anatomic limitation to them extending their neck, that would be a patient uh, that would probably best serve with a uh, surgical airway. So, you know, I, I don't think it's for everyone, but I think, again, for the average risk patient, the data would suggest it should probably be the default technique. Certainly nowadays, the residents are very competent in doing the dilatational tracheostomy, but it seems they have you know, a, a very small body of experience doing a, a standard open tracheostomy, and they may be called on, in, in the case of an emergency, to do a standard tracheostomy or a surgical airway. What's your opinion on, on the impact of the percutaneous dilatational tracheostomy and its popularity on its impact on surgical education? Uh, that's an excellent point, and I think um, I, I can speak for our own institution is that there, there are enough patients that are not candidates for percutaneous tracheostomy that that uh, the trainee probably gets a reasonable exposure to that. But uh, you know, one can imagine that that a surgical trainee could go through a training program where percutaneous tracheostomies are done quite liberally and and don't get much exposure to uh, performing a surgical airway and, and you know as you allude to uh, that that's one of those skills <laughs> that a surgeon and and uh, many times an intensivist needs uh, in an emergency so uh, i think you you bring up a good point i think it's something that we need to be cautious about circumspect about in training programs and uh, you know as we monitor uh, surgical trainees uh, operative logs uh, to to ensure that they have a reasonable exposure to conventional surgical tracheostomy. I have to say I'm not exactly sure what that number would be, but certainly they have to have exposure and, and, and uh, those uh, operative skills. We've been talking to Dr. Bradley Freeman today regarding his paper appearing in Critical Care Medicine, which is a comprehensive review on the practices of tracheostomy and the management of critically ill patients. Dr. Freeman, thanks for joining me today on Eye Critical Care. Thanks very much. Have a great day. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more episodes or search SCCM in iTunes. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Hospira Incorporated, the world's leading provider of injectable drugs and infusion technologies. Hospira has an anesthesia and critical care portfolio, which includes Presidex, dexmedetomidine, hydrochloride injection. Through its broad, integrated portfolio, Hospira is uniquely positioned to advance wellness by improving patient and caregiver safety while reducing health care costs. You can find us at www.hospira.com. Jeffrey Guy, MD, MSC, MMHC, is editor of the iCritical Care Podcasts. He is the chief medical officer at Centennial Women's and Children's Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. His clinical practice is focused on critical care, pediatric and adult burn surgery, and emergency general surgery. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.